they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy, Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would uh, open our, our, our hearts and ears to hear and understand and embrace your word, and that you would use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. No, that's not Charles Dickens. That's the Apostle Paul sometime later in his life. Okay, we don't have that recorded, but I just picture him in prison later in life. He's in Rome, in the, the dark and the dank of his prison cell, thinking back on his missionary journeys and describing Thessalonica and Berea, uh, that trip, sort of one continuous trip, as really a tale of two cities. A tale of two responses to the Gospel. Of all the possible ways people could react to hearing Christ proclaimed, the two extremes are right here in these cities back to back. And so in many ways, Thessalonica and Berea really is, this really is a a tale of two cities. Notice, first of all, that Paul, and we've mentioned this before, but Paul has a pattern for ministry. We've pointed out before, anytime he goes to a new city, if there is a synagogue, he starts there. And we see that happen in verse 2. Uh, he gets to Thessalonica, and there for, for three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. 
Uh, he, so he spent the next, at least the first three weeks, the first three Sabbaths in, uh, in Thessalonica there in the synagogue. Now, if you read just this passage, it makes it sound like Paul was there maybe a month. But if you go read First and Second Thessalonians, there, it had to be much longer than that. Uh, perhaps Luke was just simply communicating it only took three Sabbaths for them to want to get rid of him. And, and he was no longer welcome in the synagogue again. Uh, perhaps Luke is not uh, communicating all that, that happened during his time there in Thessalonica. He, Luke certainly seems to be focusing on, quite honestly, a contrast between the way the, the Thessalonians responded to the Gospel and the way the Bereans did. But it only took Paul three Sabbath days before the Jews were in an uproar and they wanted no more to do with him. We see it again in verse 10. When he gets to Berea, they go straight into the synagogue and there proclaim the Gospel. Now, Paul's going to write later in Romans 1 that the Gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. In part, that's, that's in part a historical statement. Israel was God's chosen people. They were the, the, the Old Testament church, as it were. They had the, the, God's revelation. They had the prophets. They had priests. They had the temple. They had all that, that spoke of the coming Messiah. They had all of God's revelation telling them at that point, there's going to be a Savior. There's going to be a Redeemer. There is one coming who is going to uh, be the perfect King, the perfect priest, the perfect and final prophet. And so Paul begins his ministry in the synagogue as historical sort of reference to the fact that they were first God's people. But it is important to note that the gospel came is for the Jew first, not for the Jew only. And you see in this passage as a number of Greeks respond in faith to the gospel. But there's also a practical reason for starting in the synagogues. And that is that they had the Bible. That's where the scriptures were. And so Paul knew that every Sabbath day, every Saturday, you could show up at the synagogue and there the law, the, the book of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament would be unrolled as a scroll. They'd read from the book of the law. They'd roll it back up and set it aside. They'd grab the scroll, a scroll of the prophets and they'd read from the prophets and, and they'd roll it back up and, and set it aside. And then someone would stand and explain and apply what has been read. And so Paul knew that if that's where the Scriptures are going to be read and applied and explained to God's people, that's where he needed to be. And in fact, he, it seems, was invited to do the explaining and applying himself. But notice... The foundation of Paul's ministry, verses 2 and 3. From the Scriptures. Paul doesn't grab the New York Times and make the connection there. 
He doesn't grab social media. He doesn't grab some really cool, interesting Pinterest post. He doesn't grab the latest, greatest fad, the newest book, hot off the presses, that's going to tell you how to you know, bust out the walls of your church within the next few weeks if you'll just do these things. Paul's foundation for ministry is the Bible. It's the Scriptures. He's explaining Christ from the Scriptures. He's talking about how Christ has fulfilled all that the Old Testament anticipated and and does so working His way through passages like Deuteronomy 21, which we read just a few minutes ago. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Wait a minute, that Jesus... We put Him on a tree. He was nailed to a tree. He's making all the Old Testament connections to Christ as the Messiah. But I want you to notice something about the verbs that Luke uses in verses 2 and 3. Look there with me for a second. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he, here's the verb, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Think about those verbs for a second. Those are verbs that are, um, for lack of a better word, cerebral. He's, he's reasoning with them. He's explaining to them. He's, he's proving to them. Just think of all that's implied by just those three verbs for just a second. What he's communicating is, this is true about Christ and what you believe right now is not. What you believe and understand is actually wrong. You have to hesitate when you say that in the modern world. We have to be careful about telling people they're wrong. I mean, all religions are equally, you can get to God through one or the other. It's, you know, you do you and it's really fine and, and your religion is fine and my religion is fine and we're all going to end up in the same place anyway. That's not what Paul's saying. To reason and explain and to prove, he's actually saying you must believe this and not what you already believe. But they're also not very emotional words. Like that's the other thing in today's world. We want to create an emotional worship experience so that people feel certain things when they gather with God's people and they walk out with this warm fuzzy and they feel good and they feel this. These are not emotional words. These are words of truth and logic and understanding and, and of the mind. They're exercises of the mind. They're decidedly cerebral terms, not emotional ones. Now look, nobody's, nobody's saying emotion has no place in Christianity. Don't run that far. There's a difference in responding emotionally to the truth of the Gospel and emotionalism. 
which merely wants to give you some false hope based on how you feel right now. That feeling will go away. The feeling fades. Our salvation isn't based on our feelings. It's not based on how we feel about Jesus right here and right now. It's grounded in what we know to be true about Christ. Paul argues, reasons, perhaps debates. The word may actually communicate some question and answer, perhaps. But you do realize... And if this is, we've said this before in Acts, we'll say it again, I'm sure. If you're reading the Old Testament and you think it's about Israel, if you're reading the Old Testament and you think it's about a rather demanding, law giving, just only God. If you're reading the Old Testament and you think that it has nothing to do with you, that it's only about Israel, that's not what Paul says. The Old Testament is about Jesus, not about Israel. And according to Paul, it has everything to do with us. He's showing these these Jews and these Gentile converts in the synagogue how Christ fulfills all that the Old Testament looked for in the Messiah. And we need that. We need a Savior who fulfills all that the Old Testament anticipates in the promised Messiah. Paul's pattern for ministry is ours. The Word of God is the means by which God will bring people to saving faith in Christ. Not an emotional response. Not a warm, fuzzy feeling right here and now for just this moment, even though it may be gone by lunch. Paul grounds his ministry in the truth and authority and the the sufficiency of God's Word. And that is our pattern for ministry here at Grace Covenant. There's a pattern, not just to Paul's ministry, but I want you to notice there's also a pattern, and we've seen this before, this isn't new, uh, but there's a pattern to the kinds of responses that people give to the Gospel. Notice verse 4. We're told, Luke writes, that some of them, some of the Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and... So did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So there are those in Thessalonica who hear what Paul is saying and are convinced by God's grace, by the work of the Spirit in their hearts and in their minds to hear and understand. And it seems perhaps maybe more of them were Greek than Jewish. We've seen before there are devout Greeks. There are Greeks that are involved in the life of the synagogue. They're sort of partial converts, you might say. Uh, they believe the, the truth of 
much of what's being taught about uh, about God in the Old Testament scriptures. They've not been circumcised. They're not keeping the the food laws and that sort of thing. Uh, but they are welcome to participate in the synagogue. And here we're told in verse four that they now believe the gospel. They believe what Paul is saying and have responded with faith and repentance to the truth of Scripture. We see it again down in verses 11 and 12. We see the responses, the response of the Bereans. Notice in verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. They examined what they heard. And we're told that many of them, verse 12, believed. And, and then again, not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men and some of the Jews as well. There's a picture of men and women, Jew and Gentile, high ranking and not all responding in faith to the gospel. Let me, let me, let me make this way too personal for just a second. I can tell you this. It's incredibly encouraging to preachers when people sit eagerly listening to God's Word. You see it on their faces. You see it in their body language. You see it in their reactions. You see it in their facial expressions. You see it when you say, look at verse, and they look down and they do it. When you see the tops of everybody's heads, that's a preacher's greatest joy. Because what you're doing in that moment is exactly what Paul commends the Bereans for doing. Examining the Scriptures to see if what he's saying is true. See, the truth is you're not here to hear me. You're not here to hear me talk about what I want to talk about. We are here to hear God speak to us in His Word. These believers, not only do they repent and believe, not only in in Berea, not only are they responding in faith to the gospel, but they actually went a step further than almost seems humanly reasonable. I'm tempted to get you to go home this afternoon and count the Bibles in your house. You, know, we got, you got one by your bed. You got one on the back of the toilet. You got a couple on the shelf in the den. You have a phone, an iPad, a computer. And so you have internet access. You have multiple Bible apps on your phone and on your iPad. Plus, you can get online and either have the app on your computer or just go to BibleGateway.com and there's the Bible. I mean, we have them everywhere. There might even be one under a seat in your car. We have them everywhere. That wasn't true for these people. The Bible, first of all, was just the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. Okay, the letter to uh, the Galatians has been written. At, At this point, Galatians has been written. The likelihood of anything else having been written yet in New Testament is is pretty slim. They have the Old Testament. It's on a scroll. Kept 
under lock and key, quite honestly, in the synagogue. So as these Bereans are examining together daily to see if these things were so, they had to go to the synagogue to do it and unroll the scroll and find what Paul was saying and read it again and examine it together. They show a commitment to, quite honestly, the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God. They don't have a Bible in every room of their house and on multiple eye devices, and yet they seem daily to be examining Scripture to see if what Paul... Paul? You, you know Paul, right? If they're checking to see if what Paul has said is true, then that responsibility is 50 times greater on you. Because I'm not Paul. How much more should we be committed to studying God's Word to see if what we're hearing proclaimed in our midst is so, is true? They hungered and thirsted after the truth of God's Word. And it drove them back to the synagogue to read the Old Testament, parts of the Bible we don't know anything about, looking for Jesus, looking for if what Paul is saying is true. Unfortunately, not everyone will repent and believe the Gospel. And it certainly seems that in verse in, in chapter 17 in, in Thessalonica, the greater outcry was against Paul, not for him. It seems in Berea, there's this mass conversion and nobody seems to be, be complaining. In Thessalonica, it seems that the opposite is true. In verses 5 through 9, the Jews were told were jealous. They're jealous of 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 Paul's clarity. They're jealous of his following. They're jealous of his knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures. They're jealous of his persuasiveness. We're not exactly told. We know that they were simply jealous. They were zealous for their Judaism. And you know how jealousy frequently makes us do terrible things. And so these jealous Jews, they went down to the local marketplace, grabbed a few of the the local rabble-rousers, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the troublemakers in town, and they put them into action. So look, you need to go read the King James on this passage this afternoon. Here's verse 5 in the King James Version. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. you got to love the King James. But with that, you have a very good understanding of just who these Jews grabbed. Just the kind of people. I mean, if it was a, if it was a Saturday morning cartoon, you can picture them. You know exactly how they'd be portrayed in a Saturday morning cartoon. And so they start going around and stirring up 
people and complaining. These people have turned the world upside down and now they've come here and they're teaching things like, you know, Caesar isn't God. Or that Caesar really isn't the ultimate highest authority. You know that's blasphemy, right? He can't, they can't say that. And that's exactly what they're teaching. That there's a king greater, a ruler greater than Caesar himself. And as some of the Jews, some of the Greeks, men and women, were converted, brought under the the kingly rule and reign of Christ in their lives, the Jews stirred up trouble to try to keep that from happening. That's what the Word of God does. It changes your allegiance. Rather than, than being sort of allied with yourself or with some other ungodly ruler, you now come under the rule and reign of Christ. And so, technically, what the Jews are saying is true. They really are turning the world upside down. They really are proclaiming there's a a ruler, a king, a God greater than Caesar himself. But it's really the mob that causes the great trouble in Thessalonica. They're going around and and stirring up trouble and gathering people and and they go and grab the authorities and they're like, look, you've got to go raid Jason's house because that's where Paul and Silas and Timothy seem to be uh, staying. And so you've got to go in there and get them. And and when they couldn't get them, they arrested Jason. They took him downtown and and, and booked him. You know, book him down, threw him in prison in, in Thessalonica. And then they made him post bond. That bond would have meant, in verse 9, they'd taken money as security from Jason. Basically what they're saying is, look, Jason, here's the deal. You're going to post bond. And and what that means is that you are going to be personally held responsible if these guys ever show back up in Thessalonica again. They must leave. If they ever set foot in my town again, you are going to pay the price. You'll be back in prison again. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are run out of town in Thessalonica. It actually got worse. See, you would think, there's a part of me at least, that that can understand if an entire city doesn't want this gospel preacher in their midst and they want to want him gone. Okay, fine. Get rid of him. Get him out of your town. I, I get that. But then they get word that they're actually preaching the same gospel in Berea like 45 miles away. And their response was, that's too close. Let's go, boys. Let's go get him. Let's run them out of Berea also. Because notice verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. You talk about two drastically different responses to the gospel. 
You talk about a tale of two cities. In one city, some believe, but the revolt is so overwhelming that there's very little said about those who were converted. The emphasis in Thessalonica is on the fact that Paul and Timothy and Silas were run out of town. And at the other extreme in Berea, yes, they're run out of town, but not by the Bereans. It took the Thessalonians coming over to town. The Bereans, you have this real sense that they warmly embraced the gospel and couldn't get enough of it. And were dying to hear it proclaimed day in and day out. Even that they would go to the synagogue and examine the scriptures together. Why does it surprise us when some people respond in faith and some respond in anger? It really shouldn't be a shock at all. This is a pattern throughout Acts. Yes, there are some who respond in faith. They, They will repent and believe the gospel. And there are others who will want you dead. And, and the two extremes shouldn't surprise us at all. Let me make four applications from this passage. First is this, just to, to make the corporate sort of application. Paul's pattern for ministry is our pattern for ministry. We're not going to read, here at Grace Covenant, we're not going to read the latest, greatest church growth, make your church grow like crazy in an hour and a half. And, you know, here's the latest. If you'll do these things, if you'll just create these events and these programs, and then you, you won't, I mean, you'll be beating people away. They'll be overwhelmed. Our, our ministry is grounded in the proclamation of the gospel. The preaching and teaching of God's Word. That is the primary means that God has given for bringing people to saving faith in Christ. For reaching the lost and equipping the saints. And that's the, our pattern for ministry. That will be our foundation for ministry here at Grace Covenant Church. Second application. Uh, you will frequently in some circles hear warnings about... Um, Sermons that tell you to be like. Uh, you can't say be like because that's moralism. You, you don't get to say, tell your congregation that they should be more like such and such because that's just moralism. That's just telling them to pick, them up, pick themselves up by their bootstraps. I think that's exactly why these verses, this passage about the saints in Berea is written. I think you and I are called to be more like them. In fact, Luke's description of them, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica, is intended to communicate to us. We too should be studying God's Word to see if what we are hearing is actually true. We really should be more like the Bereans. A third application The gospel, responding in 
Repentance and faith to the Gospel means a change of allegiances. If you're looking for evidence of conversion in someone's life, perhaps your own life, look for evidence of a new king. Look for evidence of a new ruler. Look for evidence of a new authority in their life. Are they bowing a knee to a new king? Are they different? Are they changed? Because because their allegiances are changed by God's grace and by the power of the Gospel. A fourth application. This passage shows us that the Gospel is for everybody. There are two kinds of people in the world in Acts 17. Jew and Gentile. The Gospel was for both. Choose your other way of dividing it. Men and women both respond in faith. Rich and poor. uh, Leading women and some men. All come to saving faith in Christ. The Gospel is for everybody. You and I are called to take that Gospel the hope of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone to everyone. Rich, poor, old, young, male, female, tiger, elephant, local, not, Athenian, foreigner. Take your pick. The Gospel is for everyone. Why? Because everybody needs Jesus. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are in need of salvation by Christ who is the only Redeemer of God's people. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ, then this passage says repent of your sin, turn and, and, and trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation. There is no other way, truth, or life under heaven given to us for salvation. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we thank You for a picture of the world we might face as we carry the Gospel wherever we go. We know that we may face Bereans, people who respond in faith and are eager to learn and to hear more and can't get enough of Your Word. We may face Thessalonians who would rather run us out of town and see us gone. Father, we pray for the grace to trust in the power of the Gospel and in Your sovereignty to do what You will through Your Word in Your people. Use us to reach the lost. Use us as you see fit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.